Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series titled His Story, Our Story. Rather than a series of unconnected events, the Bible is one story, it's the story, and it's also our story. Thanks for joining us. Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the second book of the Bible, Exodus. We're going to look at chapters 19 and 20 today. And uh, if you want to turn there, some of you may need to use the black Bible. If you didn't happen to bring a Bible with you, you can pull out one of those hard copies that says NIV, and it's on page 59. We've got the number up here on the screen if that'll help you. Hey, uh, we're in this series called His Story, Our Story. And uh, as we talk about this today, if you haven't already seen the, the series sentence that we've been repeating each week, here it is. Rather than a series of unconnected events, the Bible is one story. It's the story, and it's our story. Now, if you want to look at the notes, I would recommend turning to the backside to start. How's that? And if you look at the backside, it'll show us where we've been. The reason we're doing this series is because most people uh, not only do not know the Bible in the United States, we're going to talk about the law today, most people don't even know four out of the Ten Commandments. So how can we be deeply influenced by that which we do not know? But along with that, most of us don't know that there is an overarching story in the Bible, a storyline of God at work in the world that we all can benefit if we know it. So we've been walking through that. And if you look here, you can see that not only do we have artwork here on the stage that represents these different places, but we see creation, fall, promise, slavery, exodus, Um, And as we think about that, as we think about these things, today we're going to look at the law. Now, are you excited? When we hear that word, there's something about us. I remember when I was in seminary, there was a parking spot outside our um, building uh, where we lived that said, don't even think about parking here. I remember thinking to myself, I suddenly have more interest in parking here. What is that about? And there's something about the law that creates a tension in us. One of the questions that I want to talk about today, that I want to try and answer while we're together, is this. If you turn your notes back over to the front there, is to see is what does God's law have to do with us and our story? What does God's law have to do with us and our story? Uh, those of you that know the New Testament well enough know that there's actually quite a bit of discussion about this. So I want to wrestle with this, but I want to talk about that tension that we feel. Now, uh, Mara Martin has one of her paintings here on the stage today. Uh, There's also people, DJ and Michaela, my wife and I got involved in it. But again, if you look at her write-up, along with this picture, look at what she uh, says as she mixes color in black and white. The law has always felt like a point of tension to me. Can you relate to that? where black and white meets color. An unobtainable set of rules feels like a long, tiring, one-way road of self-inflicted disappointment. So I then have to ask, why does a loving God meet us on the mountaintop at the point of tension and give us rules we can't keep? Now, when you think about this, one of the reasons why we have a hard time understanding of whether or not the law applies to us 
is because we need to have a larger definition than we have. And then other times we need explanations that are helpful. So I want to just show you that there's three different ways in the New Testament that the law is talked about. And I want to talk about that briefly before we look at the law in the Old Testament as well. So John Piper puts it this way, and I think we're going to have these three uh, distinguished up here on the screen. He says, the law, which God gave to Moses at Mount Sinai a few months after bringing the people out of Egypt, has been the victim of some very bad press in the last several hundred years. My guess is that there is a good deal of confusion in our minds when we read on one hand, Romans 6, 14, you are no longer under law, but under grace. But on the other hand, in Romans 3.31, do we then overthrow the law by faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. He goes on. Part of our confusion is caused by the simple fact that the word law in the New Testament has at least three different meanings when used in different contexts. It can, one, refer to the whole Old Testament as in Romans 3.19, it can refer to part of the Old Testament, specifically that part of the Old Testament written by Moses, the first five books of the Bible called the Torah. Jesus used this as an example in Luke 24. The third meaning, of the, uh, the third meaning that can be understood is the Old Testament understood in a different way. Many in Israel twisted the Mosaic law into legalism. That is, they severed it from the foundation of faith, failed to, uh, to stress dependence on the Spirit, and thus turned the commandments into a job description for how to earn the wages of salvation. That is legalism. But there is no Greek word for legalism, so when Paul wanted to refer to this distortion of the Mosaic law, he often used the phrase, works of the law. But sometimes he simply used the word law as when he said, you are not under law, but under grace. He's referring in that point to the legalistic distortion, the performance system that was created by people to take those laws and act like they were just a set of impersonal laws. So this does not mean you don't have to keep the law. It means you're not burdened by it as a job description of how to earn the wages of salvation. And I found that helpful as we get ready to talk about the law. I don't know what comes into your mind, but there's places in the Bible where different people that followed God said, oh, how I love your law. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water. There's something about that. Open my eyes to see wonderful things in your law. We clearly need a definition of law that is not death dealing. So when you think about this, here's the challenge that all of us have with this tension. I think Steve shared this in the past, but there's this spectrum that we all deal with and we can easily fall on one end or the other. We can either uh, become legalistic or we can turn to license. What do I mean? Legalism is when we turn God's law into a set of rules. License is when we say, I don't want any rules. And either way is a misunderstanding. I was thinking about legalism when I was uh, younger. I had a mentor who told me years ago how he went into a church he'd never been part of to give a Bible study to a youth group. And at the door, a couple of the taller guys in the youth group grabbed him and one of them then took the back of his shirt to see whether or not his shirt was made of two different materials. 
And when they saw that it was a cotton polyester mix, they wrote him off. They wouldn't listen to a single word he said. What was that? That was taking the Old Testament and that was turning it into legalism and saying, even now in Christ, we got to keep all those things. And so I've just never forgotten that. So let's uh, look at God's story, how the law is given. That's part of his story. And then what part of the law still applies to us today, if at all? Let's talk about that. God, would you please help us as we listen now to your word and just review your story? Would you meet us right where we are so that we can see our story in your story? Thank you that you even make that possible. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so we are gonna get to reading Exodus 19 and 20 in just a second. But what I wanna do with you is I just wanna review, you know, we talked about the five books of the law, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I wanna just review with you what was going on in those books and the giving of the law and then how that story keeps unfolding, okay? So the book of Genesis. If you read the book of Genesis, the big theme is creation, obviously. But notice, if you're following along, that God creates a people to represent his likeness. God creates a people to represent his likeness. Very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, God created them, male and female, in his image, in his likeness. They, the whole goal was that they might walk with him and they might reflect him in the world and they might enjoy that kind of relationship. But then we read by the third chapter, they had already gone astray. They'd already gone their own way and there was the fall. That was a really sad day. And the ramifications and the ripple effect of that continued on into chapter five and on into chapter 11. And we saw the effects of the fall. But in Genesis 12, God starts again with a guy named Abraham. And he says, through you, I will bless all the nations of the earth. I'm going to do something through you and your descendants, your people, and I'm going to raise up that, even though it would be a miracle for you to even have a son of your own. I'm going to do that. And so we see that he became the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And by the end of the book of Genesis, we see that one of Jacob's sons, uh, Joseph, is being able to help not only save his people and make sure that they can continue on in this promise, but it ends with a sense that God is doing something. Now, we read in Genesis and in the beginning of Exodus that they came into slavery. And so if you're following along, what I want you to see is that the good news in the book of Exodus is that God redeems them. Steve talked about that last week. Uh, redeem simply means to release from bondage. But if you're following along, God redeems and gives his people the law and the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. Again, we're going to read a little bit more from Exodus in just a moment. But what I want you to notice is this. When does God give his people the law? After he redeems them, not before. Many people see the law as the way we get redeemed, as the way it becomes a way of salvation. That's never the way God understood it. He understood it to be a way to live as redeemed people already. It was given after they received grace. And so what the legalistic distortion of the law did was it turned it around. And it said, now we have to obey these laws for God to love us. We have to obey these laws for God to redeem and save us. And that was not the case. It was to, they were redeemed from slavery, redeemed for being his people. They had a purpose. 
And again, sometimes we turn that around and we think, the only way God will love me is if I always obey perfectly and things like that. And that's just not the understanding that even in the Old Testament had. And so as you think about that, and now I want to read some of Exodus, excuse me, 19 and 20 to you to show you where we see this grace, this mercy, this redeemed message. So if you look at, uh, again, Exodus 19, let me just read verses 3 through 6. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord, and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings. Think about the warmth of this and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. In other words, you'll be able to be the people that represent and reflect me in the world like I always intended. And although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And now we see in chapter 20, the rest of 19 is about how they got prepared to receive the law because it was going to be an awesome thing when God descended on the mountain there at Mount Sinai. In chapter 20, it starts this way. And God spoke all these words. Now I want you to read verse two with me that's in that first gray box, and I want you to hear how he reminds them that he has redeemed them. Let's read it together. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And he delivers what we've come to know as the Ten Commandments. And in both Exodus and Leviticus, there'll be more and more explanation of how this looks to be his people in the world. Can you see this picture? They're standing at the foot of the mountain. And they're waiting for God to speak to Moses and bring back to them. Okay, what, now that you're my people, how are we going to live? What ground rules, what boundaries, what direction, what guidance are you going to need? And that's important to understand that. Because again, we oftentimes we think of law as overly structured, as restrictive, as death dealing. But look at the word law and what it means if you're following along in the notes. The law, the Torah, is what it, the word is in Hebrew. Uh, it means God's instruction and direction for life. God's instruction and direction for life as his people in this world. Some of you may have been to a synagogue before. When I was a youth pastor many years ago here in Springfield, I took the youth group at that time on a Saturday morning to the synagogue here in town uh, because I was friends with the rabbi there. And one of the things that happened is, is that we got a chance to see when they brought the scrolls, the Torah, the five books of Moses out of the cabinet, and they began to walk around with it and watch each person take their prayer shawl kiss it and touch the Torah. The reverence they showed before it was read touched me. There was something about that that they at least understood. This is from God. This is God's life direction for us. And we want to take it seriously. And just thinking about that is a picture that God always hoped is, will you appreciate the boundaries that I have for you? Will you appreciate that I know more than you do about how your life can really go well? Will you appreciate that? And so Torah always meant to be a great word. That's why the writers in Psalms and other places could say, oh, how I love your Torah. Oh, how I love your direction for my life compared to my own, what I think is smart. 
What a difference it makes when I delight in your law, your Torah, and, and let it direct my life instead of some other way. So again, they saw it that way. And so here they are at the foot of the mountain. And then you hear these 10 commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And then you shall have no other gods before me is the big idea there. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not take the name of the Lord's name in vain or misuse my name. My character represents all of who I am. You shall keep the Sabbath. You shall honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not lie. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not covet. And you see these 10 commandments here and they hear this and all of a sudden they hear, I think they heard how relational all those words were. They realize these aren't just rules. These are how we relate to God and how we relate to each other. And these are directions that show something of God's heart. So if you're following along, let me continue. By the way, let me, I, I list out to the right Joshua 1.8. Here's what God told Joshua. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Over and over again, when he explains his laws to them, he says, so that it may go well with you, so that it may go well with you. You have to know my heart towards you. You have to know that even though it looks like I'm restricting you, I'm actually trying to create boundaries that if you live within these, you'll flourish. You'll do better. I've shared this illustration before, but back about 50 years ago, educators in the United States thought that we needed more freedom for our kids in school, that we needed to take anything that looked restrictive away. So one of the things that they did as an experiment in a number of different schools is that they took the fences, the chain link fences down around the playground of some schools. And at first, it looked like it was a great idea. The kids just enjoyed having no restrictions and stuff like that. But very shortly after they did that, they noticed that week after week after week, the kids never played all the way out to the edges. Instead, they all huddled in the center of the playground. At first, what they thought would be a blessing actually made them more insecure. They didn't know where the lines were and therefore they couldn't live freely within them. And what God was saying is, I'm giving you boundary lines that at first look restrictive, but if you'll honor those, you'll actually be able to play more fully, be able to live more richly in life. And so we see this, he gives the law. But notice the book of Leviticus. And I want you to notice that the book of Leviticus comes after the book of Exodus. That's another sign of his grace. So if you're following along, God provides a way to atone for breaking his law. In the book of Leviticus, God provides a way to atone for breaking his law. I don't know about you, but God knows something more about you and me than we know. And that is, is that sometimes when the law is given, we not only look for loopholes, we look for shortcuts or we look for ways to still do our own thing that he knew that the only way, if we did that, the consequences would be so severe he had to provide something for us or he chose to, he didn't have to. And what he did is he provided the sacrificial system and festivals like the Day of Atonement. A number of years ago, um, when I was first getting introduced to Cherry Hills, there was a man in this church that asked if I would be willing to meet with him for a Bible study at that time early in the morning. And we were already good friends. So I said, sure. And so uh, I said, what do you want to study? And he goes, Leviticus. And I went, excuse me. And uh, so we started reading it. 
I'll never forget one of those mornings we read this. The instructions in Leviticus is that when people violated God's law, they were to come before the tabernacle there and they were to lay their hand on the animal of their sacrifice that they brought an innocent third party and they were to lay their hand on the animal's head as a way of saying, I am being allowed to transfer my sin, my violation onto this animal who's done nothing wrong in order that payment for my sin can be taken care of. And as they did, then the lamb or the animal was slaughtered and the blood was shed and they realized it's costly to disobey God. It, it hurts other people. It hurts other, it hurts God. It hurts me. It throws everything out of whack. And I remember us being so struck by that and yet also being so struck that God provided a way for atonement so that they didn't have to walk around and say, I'm hopeless. They could say, okay, God, you care about me. You want me to keep learning how to be your people even though I fail and stumble. What a God. And it was a foreshadowing of the ultimate way of atonement that would eventually be offered at the greatest expense to himself, God sending his son. And so we see in Leviticus that. But notice that that way of atonement always comes after the giving of the law. So before the law, he redeems them. That's grace. Gives the law because he wants them to know how to live their people. And he knows that they're not going to live it perfectly. He provides a way of atonement. Now look at Numbers. Numbers is a book that you go, okay. So he promised that they would be able to come out and be able to live as his people, right? And so what, what, is that, what does that look like? Now he's gonna, they're going to be able to go in the promised land. But if you're reading Numbers, here's the sad story. God's people miss out because of unbelief. God's people miss out because of unbelief. In other words, they don't believe God knows what he's talking about. They see the giants. They see what it's going to take. And they go, I don't think God can do it through us. I know we're supposed to be his people, but I think I've got a better idea of what being his people would be when we got this challenge ahead of us. And that's what Hebrews 3.19 says. Look at what it says. It just simply captures it this way. So we see they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. They didn't trust God. They didn't depend on him. They failed to live as his people should live. If you go just two more verses later, you'll see that in chapter four, verse two, it says the reason why is because when they heard God's commands and his instructions, they did not combine it with faith. They completely trusted in themselves. And when you and I hear God's commands, sometimes we think we're smarter than God or we think that it's all up to us and we don't see that God wants to do it together as his people. So the book of Numbers adds, sadly, they miss out. And by the way, friends, every time I've thought I was smarter than God, I've missed out. I've become smaller instead of bigger as a person. And my view of reality gets smaller instead of bigger. It always happens. Notice the book of Deuteronomy, though, because we don't end on that bummer note, do we? The book of Deuteronomy is that God starts over and renews his law and promise again. God starts over and renews his law and promise again. You know Deuteronomy, do you know what it actually means? Deutero 2, nomos, law, second law. So what happened is, is that when they refused because of their unbelief to go into the promised land, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until every one of them except Joshua and Caleb had passed away. Now this new generation, God comes to them and says, okay, my plan is still for you to be my people. This is part of my story. Here we go. So now I'm going to review the commandments I gave to your forefathers and your ancestors. And now we're going to show you how wise this is. And if you'll listen to me, if you'll trust me, 
I will show you how to live in this next chapter of your life. You can be my people that reflect my heart and my character in the world. And again, he tells them not only what the boundary lines are, but he also tells them what the consequences will be if they decide they're smarter than him and decide not to trust him. I don't know about you, but I have respect for every parent that clearly outlines what they expect of their children in a boundary way and then says, but if you decide not to do this, if you step out this, here are the consequences. If that's clear, then a kid can begin to understand, oh, okay. And especially then when they hold those kids to that responsibility, that's how they grow in character. That's how they become bigger people. And that's what God did in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, I'd love to tell you, that after God reviewed that again, that the people just obeyed God and said, we get it, we don't need to hear it a third time, and all of a sudden, they're up and to the right. Nope. Joshua, the book of Judges, tell that there's a lot of ups and downs, and especially a lot of downs, and by the time we get to the book of Judges, the book of Judges, we're going to study the kingdom of the, king, the kings next week, but by the time we get to Judges, which is right before the kings, Here's the last verse of the book of Judges, and it is so telling. At that time, there was no king in Israel. People did whatever they felt like doing. The New International says everyone did what they saw fit. Some translations say everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I decide what's best for me. I decide the wisest way to be one of God's people in this world. I'm going to lean more towards license or more towards legalism instead of life. And that's what happened. So if you're following along, God's people choose instead to do as they see fit. And then things continue through the rest of the Old Testament where there's always a remnant of God's people who understand his heart, who understand their calling, and they live it out. But the majority of God's people don't. And it ends in the Old Testament with a promise, I'm not done yet. And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus is interacting with people that are operating out of the legalistic distortion of the law. Who have stripped the law down to the letter. They no longer understand the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law was always good. It was always for their welfare, but now they've turned it into a system, a performance track, a way, a job description instead of a life, instead of a relationship. And so one of them, the expert in the law, comes to Jesus and says to test him now, not to actually help him win, which is the greatest commandment in the law. And Jesus answers that. Would you read that with me in the second gray box, please? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus goes, look, if you want to net it all down, all the law and the prophets hang on these. This was always behind every commandment that God ever had was love. Not syrupy love, not love of our own definition, but love that is solid and sacrificial. Love that takes the other person more seriously than we take ourselves in such a way that there's respect, that there's affection, that there's warmth. Because when you live out of that motivation, you look at laws not just as overstructure, you see them as opportunities to live within the chain link fence as well. 
the purpose that he has for us. And man, God wanted that. And so if you're following along, the heart of God's law is loving God and our neighbor. The heart of God's law is loving God and our neighbor, both vertical and horizontal. I told you a few weeks ago that I was going to get involved in the art process. And uh, so the humor of God is that I did with the help of my wife. And again, uh, DJ and Michaela and Mara and I this week were responsible for the law. And you can see, I hope you'll stop by out in the lobby and see them or stop up here after the service and just look at this artwork. It's kind of fun to see our church family. But here's the one Trish and I came up with. And again, we're not artsy people, but we just wanted to explain, if you understand the law properly, you understand that it came from God's heart to us. He wants it to go well with us. He wants us to grasp that even though it's on stone tablets, it really comes from his heart. And he wants us to receive it. He wants us to know it. And Jesus said, when you understand, because you see, if you love your neighbor, you won't lie to them. I remember a guy years ago said his house was broken into. And after he went through the pain of that, he said, whoever did this must not have loved me. That's right. You and I just don't do things like that when we love. And there's things we won't do to God when we love him. And there's things we'll do for God out of a different center and motivation when we love him. And that's the heart of it. So like an x-ray, if you're following along, his law exposes our need for a new heart. Like an x-ray, and the better word would probably be like a scan. His law exposes our need for a new heart. The idea is, is that an x-ray or a scan, can, an MRI, a PET scan, can get inside and see the inside of us, right? Even though it may look different on the outside. And uh, Romans 7, 7, Paul says this. I used to think I was absolutely faultless in the way I kept the law because I was paying attention to the letter of the law. But when God showed me the spirit of the law, man, he said, well, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. He said, it did like a scan on me. A few months ago, just as a total precaution because of my family history, I heard that there was a new heart scan test that literally is almost as accurate as a heart cath. So I took this scan and it showed me. And so now I know exactly where my heart's at. I know that there's a vessel in my heart about 30% blocked and the rest of them are looking pretty good. But I was able to do some precautionary stuff just so I know where my heart's at. But that's nothing compared to what God's shown me through his law about my own heart. I see it's like a mirror. I see that any ways that I've devised of, you know, weighing or representing myself just pale when God holds up, this is my heart. This is what I want you to know and do. Man, it just shows me my heart. So notice this, that God sent Jesus, knowing that we all need a new heart. God sent Jesus to fulfill the law for us and in us. God sent Jesus. Remember how he provided a way of atonement? Well, he also provided an even better way of atonement by sending Jesus, but more than just atonement. By sending Jesus, Jesus died rose again, ascended into heaven, and then he said, I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit. So that the people in the Old Testament, when they stood at the foot of the mountain and they heard my commands, they had the help of the Holy Spirit outside them. But now in this new covenant, I'm going to write my laws on your heart when you believe in my son. And I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit so you'll have power to obey. That means that there's never going to have to be a time ever again when you have to sin. 
You'll, you may choose to sin, you may in your weakness sin, but you know that now the Holy Spirit is, is pulling for you. He's fighting for you. He's working in you to remind you of the heart of my law, the spirit of my law for you, my commands. And it was so powerful. And Jesus came to fulfill that, not just for us, so the law doesn't matter anymore, but he also came to fulfill so the law could now be lived out in us, but without someone holding a gun to our head or seeing it as legalistic. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17 and following. This is a Sermon on the Mount. Don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose, their intention. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others, to do the same, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So now he takes just an example here. He says, but I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees who've turned it into the letter of the law only, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But now listen to what he does. But I say... If you are even angry with someone and you wish they were dead, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Why? Because now you get the purpose of the law was to be rightly related to me and to people. And you begin to live it out. And when you fail or stumble at it, you come to your senses and you correct it and you go the direction the Holy Spirit's moving you. Come on. And he holds it up. Now, I just need to stop for a second because here's the question. Do we need to still bring sacrifices to church? Do we still need to be careful of which foods are clean and which foods are unclean? Do we need to make sure we don't wear clothes that are made of two different fabrics? I mean, like, what's all this mean? So I want to read something to you from Tommy Nelson. And we'll put that up on the screen here. And here's what he says. In the book of Exodus, God gave the law, which consisted of three things. The moral law, the hygienic law, and the ceremonial law. The moral law taught the holiness of God. He instituted ceremonial law in the tabernacle and the sacrifices of the priesthood to show how people could approach God in spite of violations of the law. The shedding of blood and sacrifices was their means of forgiveness. Ritual hygienic law described, prescribed clean bodies, clean homes, clean clothing, and a clean diet. Israel was to be a holy and clean nation separate from all the other nations. This was Israel's privilege of having God's law. So the question becomes is, how do we interpret the Old Testament laws? We interpret them through the New Testament. Whatever continues in the New Testament is binding for us. Whatever does not is not binding. So for instance, we find in Mark 7 that when that gospel writer is writing that says, now, from now on, all the food laws are no longer upon us. We see that in Acts 10 too, where Peter had to learn, don't call unclean what I've called clean. 
We also see that the ceremonial laws, the sacrifices in the book of Acts 15 and Hebrews says that there's no longer a need for sacrifice because the one sacrifice once for all time has been offered in Jesus Christ. So now the sacrifices we bring are sharing with others and doing good to others. It's no longer about animals having to be killed because Jesus has been killed and his blood has been shed on our behalf. The only thing that continues is the moral law of God. Jesus upheld do not murder. He upheld do not commit adultery. He upheld any of the moral laws of God of how we live that way because behind every moral law of God is his unchanging character. It is always going to be his will for us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. In fact, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and do good to them that mistreat you. Oh my goodness. He was recovering the heart of the law and it is challenging, but that's why we need his Holy Spirit. And that's why we need a redeemer like Jesus. The law was meant to make us absolutely convinced that we needed Jesus and his spirit to live in us. There's no other way to be his people in the world. So how do we bring this home? How do we make it? How do we understand it as part of our story? First question I want to ask you as we close here is this. Has Jesus redeemed me so his spirit lives in me? Has Jesus redeemed me so his spirit lives in me? I list out to the right there Romans 8. I don't have time to read it right now, but just know this. The reason why he gave us his Holy Spirit is so that the righteous requirements of the law might be met, not just for us, but met in us. Now we begin to live out of a different center. We live out of a glad-hearted redemption. But the second question is this. Am I learning to live as one of his people in the world? Am I learning to live as one of his people in the world? We live in a country that has individualized Christianity. The problem is, is that God never had that plan for us all to walk around like disconnected individuals. It was always for a people. So now in Jesus Christ, when you and I trust in Christ and he puts his Holy Spirit, we become family members. You're my brother. You're my sister. If Jesus Christ is living in you by his spirit and he's living in me, it's different. Colossians 3.17 reminds us of our responsibility and our privilege. And whatever you do or say, let it be as a representative of the Lord Jesus in this world. Whatever you and I do or say from now on, we live with a glad heart because he loved us first. The uh, Mara also wrote a little bit more in her write-up and I found it to be really good news. Listen to what she writes. As we go, are going through his story, our story, I'm discovering that maybe God's heart in the law is for us to over time become who we were meant to be in the garden, to fully understand and embody what it means to be human and to bear his image. This road of rules then changes from a one-way that forces me from tension to isolation into a two-way passage where we can find freedom to live as a people who first love the Lord our God with our whole hearts by hearing what his heart is on the mountaintop and who second love our neighbors as ourselves by going from that place down the road and extending love and grace to those we meet along the way. This is how we live as his redeemed people. The last question is, what, how are you relating to the law? So here's the question. Is his spirit showing me an area where I'm rationalizing? Is his spirit showing me an area where I'm rationalizing? You know, where I'm still operating out of unbelief or I'm operating out of pride, where I say, you know, I don't think your command, at least this particular one, is necessary for me or wise for me. 
When you and I have that spirit of pushback, we start acting like the people in God's earlier story and we miss out. So the question is, are we rationalizing? I'll just give you a couple examples. When I was a youth pastor, the question almost always came up with, how far is too far? How can I like, you know, do everything I want with my girlfriend or boyfriend, but not go, you know, you know, premarital sex all the way or some kind of thing like that. How can I, I've, I've talked to people that go, look, I'm not committing adultery even though I'm spending more time thinking of fantasy. And again, what that is, is a mindset that d- it misses the heart of God. And so I remember there was a story my mentor told me to try and help me I always remember this. He said there was a very wealthy man who had a chauffeur and his chauffeur retired. This man lived in a large house on the mountain. And so he had his assistant arrange interviews with future chauffeurs to find the right person that would drive his Rolls Royce around and drive him around. When he did the interview, he just said at different times, he said, okay, now we're going to see how well you can drive. And he said to him, uh, see how close you can get to the edge of the road without going over the side of the mountain. So a bunch of people said, oh, I can do that. And a bunch of people did. They didn't get the job. The guy that got the job was when he heard that man say that, he said, look, my job is to take care and honor my boss, right? I will never drive near the edge because I'm going to stay as close to the mountain as I can because I want to honor him. And he understood that behind these different things, the spirit instead of the letter just looks totally different. So are there areas that you find yourself rationalizing and saying, well, at least I'm keeping the letter of the law. At least I haven't violated God's law. And yet we know in our hearts we're messing with it. We're, we're not letting his spirit remind us of the heart of things. Would you just take a moment to bow your head and think about that? Think about the grace that he wants you to know. That he doesn't just want to redeem you from something. He wants to redeem you for something. So that your story And you can be part of a people bigger than yourself and part of a purpose bigger than your own. Before we sing, let me pray for you. Lord, Help me look at the people when I drive in front of me with your intention. Help me think about the things I think about and watch and invest my time in. Help us, Lord, to understand that we needed that structure and we can live with inside that structure more freely than without it. You're a wise Father. Thank you for loving us enough to give us your law. Oh, how I love your law. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.